And so we're going to start out a little more interactively this morning. I want you to turn to the person next to you. There's a series of questions. I want you to think of a different person for each one of these things coming up on the screen here. I want you to, to, to between the two of you, think of a phenomenal world-class musician, not just a current fad, but, you know, like a long-standing, kind of an enduring person, right? So turn to the person next to you. Good for the musician right now, and I'll give you, I'll cue you for the next one. No, really, go ahead. Talk to each other. Yes, it's okay. It's all right. It's not a, it's not a test. You, you, yeah, you're going to have to talk to yourselves. You're sitting up here by yourselves. All right, uh, think of now a true competitor. Someone who's a real competitor. Just, you know, between the two of you, come up with a couple names here. Go ahead. True competitor. All right, how about a great warrior? A great warrior. Great warrior. Not thinking sports figure, okay? A great warrior here. Great. Go ahead. No, keep talking. This is not all the same person, okay? Like different people, different warriors in history. It gets a little quieter. We're not sure about that. How about a renowned poet? Someone from our history or currently that's a renowned poet. Just, we got some names for each other on that. Now this next one, just to keep anybody from fisticuffs, let's say someone like no longer alive, okay? All right, so... <laughs> A skilled political leader, go ahead, in between, come on, go ahead and test your knowledge of history here, and political leaders. And then, of course, this, this is always a fun one, this is where the conversation gets louder, uh, an attractive man, okay, just, yeah, besides Dalton, besides Dalton, an attractive man. Now, if you're sitting there with your wife, this is, could be a really weird one, maybe, too, right? All right, as we start this series, uh, in just a moment here, we're going to move to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It'll take me a few minutes to get there, and I'm excited about this this morning because we're launching into a new series, and we're going to spend the next two or three months studying the life of King David. Now, for me as a kid growing up, these are the, these are the scriptures that I would read a lot, all the time. I would read these stories over and over and over, so this is really fun for me to kind of go back and to mine some of the depths of these stories. Stories, and I want to say a word just kind of at the front of this series about why we're doing this. Like, why would we take, you know, two or three months or so here at Hope and devote so much time to studying one man's life? Which would, I think is a pretty good question. Um, well, for one thing, David was an incredible man. One scholar said that, that if he had to name any single Renaissance man in human history, somebody with extraordinary capabilities on multiple fronts, David very possibly, he said, would be at the very top of the list for all humanity. I mean, you think about David for just a moment. He was a musician that was so skilled that when he would play for King Saul, he'd get summoned to play for King Saul when Saul was having trouble. Um, and in David's playing of music, Saul's depression would just vanish when nothing else would help. I mean, it was like musical uh, Prozac for, for Saul. I mean, he was a good musician, right? Not only that, he was a fierce competitor, too. As a kid, he'd take on a lion, a bear, anything, just bring it on. Uh, he was also a great warrior, such a great warrior, that he won a legendary battle against a great champion when he wasn't even old enough to shave. And when he was older, the greatest soldiers of the people of his day were attracted to him to serve under him, and then he dominated the enemies of Israel in a way that his, this people had never experienced before or since. 
Not only that, David was also a poet, and he wrote uh, many of the psalms that we use in Scripture now, and they express the the longing, the deepest heart longings for, for God. And even today, thousands of years after he penned many of these psalms, they remain the most moving and influential poetry, uh, really our guide for worship to God, even to this day. But not only was he a warrior, a musician, a poet, David was a skilled leader. He was so wise in politics that Israel gained its highest economic and well-being and political stability in its history under his reign. Uh, His reign is now still and forever will be remembered as the golden age of Israel. Um, It would exist, this golden age, so powerfully in the Jewish people's memories that they would refer to the coming Messiah as the son of David because they were hoping he would reclaim that the Messiah, who was Jesus, would reclaim the glory days of David. Uh, David was also a very attractive man. We're told several times that he was physically attractive and, and his personality drew people. He was a fascinating, fascinating guy. So you think about all of this stuff in one man, okay? So he had the musical prowess of, who, who would you say, who was the musician to you? So you throw a few out here. Mozart. Mozart. Yeah, Mozart. We'll go with Mozart on that, right? So the musical prowess of Mozart. He had the poetic soul of Shakespeare. Shakespeare. I like that one. Okay. Very intelligent. Front row here. I like you. Sorry. <laughs> he had the competitive heart of a Michael Jordan. LeBron James would have had it until this last week, right? Yeah. Not after this last week. <laughs> the competitive heart of, of Michael Jordan. I'm going to get in trouble for that one, huh? How about the warrior strength of who? Who would we? Of Thor. Of who else? I still didn't hear you. Patton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Thor and Patton. Those are both really good. Warrior strength right there. Uh, he had the political leadership of? Ray, Ray. Churchill. Lincoln. Roosevelt. Yeah, Martin Luther King. Yep. Great leadership abilities, and he had the physical attractiveness of, I heard it right there, Ryan Starr, yep, right there, I heard that, that was good, that was good, yep, and Thor, right, we watched that yesterday while I was sick, so I'm surprised my wife didn't change her answer to, to what is, what's Hemsworth, what's his name, yeah, she, she said, you know, my, well, Brad Pitt is who my wife thinks is very attractive, but listen, folks, I've seen Brad without makeup and some pictures like that, he's a little dumpier in real life than he is, you know, so I kind of feel bad for him, but, so David was like uh, Brad Pitt or Ryan Starr, but, but even more handsome, okay, he was this amazing, amazing guy, so this is, this character, David, in many ways, um, He's the central character in the Old Testament. I mean, even just looking at the space in Scripture that was devoted to telling his story, uh, for example, Abraham had, he's pretty important, Abraham, right? He had 14 chapters in the Old Testament devoted to his story. The prophet Elijah had 10 chapters devoted to his story. He was a very important character. But David has about 66 chapters in Scripture devoted to his life story. More than that, David is mentioned 600 times or so in the entire Old Testament and another 60 times in the New Testament. In fact, if you read all the way through Scripture, David is the last character mentioned in the Bible. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says and mentions David. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Uh, One more thing here. The, The flag that flies over Israel right now up on the screen, anybody know what that star is called? Yeah, the star of David. So David's a big deal. 
because he was one of the main characters in this grand story that God is writing and has been writing, and his impact is widespread and enduring. So with all that kind of as our backdrop, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel, and we're going to meet the character of David in what will turn into a story of epic proportions. Um, But before we hit that part, uh, just here's a quick background on the timeline of the nation of Israel when David enters the, the story. So Israel had been freed from Egypt long before. They lived in the promised land under a series of judges who ruled them. These judges were were in charge. Uh, Men men like Joshua and Gideon, Samson, and a woman named Deborah were in charge leading the nation. And the last judge that led the nation of Israel was Samuel. And Samuel was not just a judge, but he was also a prophet of God. But the people wanted a king. Everybody else, all the other nations had kings. It's what they saw around them. And so finally, God, um, there's another story behind this, and maybe we'll get to this in the series. But God had Samuel anoint a king for the people of Israel. And the first king of Israel, anybody know his name? Saul, very good. Saul was an impressive man. It said he stood head and shoulders above all the other people in Israel. But the problem with Saul is that as he... Uh, was in power longer and longer. He grew increasingly corrupt and evil and violent and disobedient to God. So there was one place where Saul had done this again, and King Saul ignored specific instructions from God. And so the prophet Samuel, here's a fun job, he gets to show up and tell the king, uh, Saul, you're going to be replaced as king. God's going to choose someone new. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, He says to Saul, now your kingdom, Saul, will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So God had given up on Saul and chosen a man after his own heart. So a few chapters later is where we meet David, 1 Samuel 16. And I love this scene of how David kind of enters into the story because it's almost embarrassing how unassuming and low-key his introduction is. But, but the idea here is, is we find um, here how David enters the story, really sets up David's entire story. And by the time we get to David here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel, <clears throat> by now, he is a very old man. And if you know his story, you could think all the way back to where God called him as a young boy, and he heard God speak to him in the temple when he was a child, and now he's an old man. His time on earth is almost done, and God speaks to him one more time. In 1 Samuel 16, we'll pick it up in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then they consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When he arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? <laughs> uh, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but, but he's out tending the sheep, Samuel said to him. Then send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came, up, came upon David in power. Now, that long passage there is our introduction to to David. Um, basically what happens to sum it up, God says to Samuel, hey, Samuel, go anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but God, we've already got a king. It's not good for your health to anoint a new king when there's still an old one around, right? So, um, but God says, hey, trust me. And so Samuel goes to a place called Bethlehem, somewhere we'll hear about again in scripture, right? And, and as we think about this, just even imagining this story, um, I, I kind of picture Samuel looking a little bit like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, right? He's kind of stern, wizardy looking dude, right? And so you just picture him setting off for Bethlehem, and, and who knows? Like, he gets to the outskirts of town, and people knew who he was, and maybe there were some kids out playing, some boys looking for arrowheads, and they saw him, and bang, like, word would have spread quickly, quickly in this scene, and they would have run in to say, hey, old Samuel is coming, and the news spread rapidly. Fear would have gripped every heart, right? I love how it says in verse 4 that the elders of the town trembled when they saw that Samuel was coming, right? I guess Samuel probably wasn't known for his small talk. He's not kind of a drop-in-and-visit sort of guy. Uh, so here he comes, strolling into town. The leaders are nervous, they're trembling, and they're probably wondering, oh no, who sinned, right? Like somebody's got to be in serious trouble if Samuel's coming to town, which is why they're trembling. Um, but their anxiety would have been quickly relieved when Samuel said, hey, no, no, it's okay, I'm here to worship God, and, and you're invited to join me and bring Jesse and his sons along. So they go to this important event um, with Samuel. It's a great honor to do this. But then, again, something really unexpected. None of them probably would have expected that he would have said, hey, Jesse, have Jesse and Jesse's sons come along as well. And so if you're Jesse, you've got to be feeling pretty good about this. I get invited to this party by name from, from Samuel. I mean, this is a pretty good deal. My, my fame must be spreading somehow. He's, he's, he's a dad that's probably so proud he can hardly stand it. So again, picture the scene a little bit, you know. Um, they're going to parade the sons in front here. And so Jesse introduces his, his firstborn son, his heir. And he's thinking, I've always known this kid was destined for greatness, right? He's, oh, he's good. He is so good. He's He's excellent. I mean, today, um, the, the oldest son probably would be the kind of kid that would be, you know, like our uh, quarterback of the football team, class president, outstanding young CEO. He'd have pulled up in his, you know, BMW and, 
If it was today, he'd have this commanding presence, kind of kid that walks into a room and, and dominates it. I mean, clearly, you look at him, here's the kind of kid that gets things done. He's the kind of guy who has king written all over his face. And so Jesse would have said, hey, Samuel, this is my oldest son. <laughs> this is Eliab. In fact, Eliab is, did you know this? Eliab is the Hebrew word for you to man. Do you guys know? Who's this? <laughs> ah, just kidding, just kidding. Jesse would have been like, yep, he's the man, right? All the elders of Bethlehem would have nodded their head, oh yeah, he's the man. And Samuel looked at him and said, oh yeah, he's the man, all right. And then God says, eh, he's not the man. He is not the man. See, God spoke to Samuel and said what we read a moment ago, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, which shows us that it is the heart which is what really, truly matters to God. And so Samuel, he gets to pass that good news on, right? So then Jesse has son, son number two, Abinadab, and he's not the man. And son number three, Shema, and he goes through all seven sons, and they don't name all of them, but one by one, they get paraded before Samuel, proudly presented by Jesse. Each one stands before Samuel, and each one is rejected one by one. I mean, can you imagine the tension that was building, right, as the next one comes in? Yet none were chosen. Like, nobody is the man. And Samuel, can you imagine his thoughts, right? He's got to be wondering, hey, God, <laughs> like, uh, why in the world did you have me come out here to the middle of nowhere and risk my life to reject seven sons? Like, come on. And so Samuel says to Jesse, are these like the only sons you have? I mean, doesn't that seem like kind of a dumb question, right? Don't you think Jesse would be aware of how many sons he has? Are you these the only sons you have? And it's so weird. Jesse says, almost as an afterthought, he says, uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still the youngest. Like he doesn't even have a name yet. They're still, you know, just what's his name, right? They're still the youngest. And we need to understand that in in Hebrew culture, the term the youngest did not only mean the last born, it meant the lowest in rank. See, there was a real big significance in that day to the whole birth order thing. Now, there's probably some of that in our day too, right? How many of you were not first born in your family? Just raise your hand, will you? Right? Right? Now, how many of you noticed there were certain unfair advantages, like that the older kids got like way too many pictures in the photo album? You guys notice that deal? <laughs> Right? My parents are not here this week, right? But in my family, I was born third out of four kids. I was, you know, the younger middle child. And my family did slides. Anybody do reels? They like on these round reels and they insert the slides. We, I think we had at least 10 stacks of slides in our family, okay? And so tray number one through four were all of the firstborn. My big sister Paula, right? That's all her. Trays number, you know, five through eight were my big sister Paula and my big sister Jim, you know, together. By the time they got to me, I think I maybe got like a half tray of slides. Anybody else, right? Anybody else like this? Yeah. I mean, and all of my slides were shared with those two older brats. I mean, it was terrible, right? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <clears throat> Mostly. Um, 
To, to paraphrase an author named Bill Butterworth, uh, he, he said that Jesse's photo album would look something like this. He'd look and say, oh, yeah, yeah, here's our, our firstborn um, son, Eliab. Here's all his pictures. Yeah, here's Eliab being born. Here's Eliab when he's one hour old. Oh, here's a picture of Eliab on his second day of his life. Oh, here's Eliab's first poopy diaper, right? And just every day documented in detail because he's firstborn. Then you get to number two, Abinadab. So, well, here's Abinadab being born. The second picture is where Abinadab is walking. And the third one is when he gets to preschool. They get a little more sparse, a little more reasonable maybe uh, by, the, by the next child. The third child, you know, oh, here's Shammah being born. Uh, the next picture, oh, there he is going to second grade. I mean, it's, you know, spaced out. So by the time you get to the last photo album with David, it's, well, here's David being born. And, huh, what do you know? That's about it. Hey, honey, we got to get some more... <laughs> Right? Anybody else suffering from this? We could start a small group here. Yeah. <clears throat> so David was last, and, and actually, um, some biblical scholars speculate that David was possibly born out of an illegitimate relationship, um, and that when David wrote in the Psalms, in sin I was conceived, he could have been alluding to his own history uh, there's not solid proof of that, but lots of Jewish sources as well believe that there was some sort of scandal behind the birth of David. So that explains a little bit too, like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, the, what's his name? He's not here, right? So all these other brothers get rejected, David is ignored, and Jesse's like, oh yeah, there's uh, the youngest, um, but he's out there with the sheep. Like, <laughs> let me tell you though, he's not the man, right? And Samuel says, go send for him, we'll wait. Now imagine what that would have been like waiting right there. It had to take considerable time to track this kid out with the sheep. He's out there to track him down. And Samuel says, we're not going to sit down until he arrives. Right? So now everybody's standing there, seven sons, all like the first runner-up in the Miss America pageant, trying to look like things are okay, when what they're really hoping for is that the real winner would die so they can take over. Right? Isn't that what? No? Is that not what's going on? That's what it looks like to me. <clears throat> that was supposed to be funny. You didn't laugh at that either, though, honey. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> well, they finally, you know, get David to show up. And today, I imagine he would have been pulling up like in a used Saturn, right? And um, <laughs> there he is. And God looks at him and says, that's the one. That's my man. That's him. Now, this is such a, an interesting theme that's going on here. I think it runs all through the Old Testament. And I want to say a little bit about that because it's the reversal of the birth order deal. Because, again, back then, in those days, the birth order was a big deal. But you think about this thread where there's a reversal in this with the people of God. Um, with Abraham's sons, Ishmael is born first, but God chooses Isaac. And with Isaac's kids, Esau comes first, but the entire family line has to go through Jacob. And then with Jacob, ten older brothers are born first, but then God chooses Joseph. And fast forward here to Jesse's family, seven other boys are born first, but David, the youngest, is anointed king. And you think about what's going on just in those threads um, what is God saying? Like, is he, is he saying that firstborn kids are all spoiled brats and he likes middle or younger children better? Yes, I think that's part of it, right? Right there, yeah. <clears throat> no, no, no. I love my siblings, by the way, okay, most of the time. I love them very much. Um, 
But, but that's not it. That's not what God's saying. See, in those days, everything went to the firstborn. All rights, properties, all privileges. That's the way the power structures were set up. And so I think that God is saying in stories like this that he breaks into the ordinary cultural practices of human life and does new things. He's saying, hey, listen, the old limitations, the old boundaries about who counts and who doesn't count, those things don't apply anymore, not in God's kingdom. See, God is doing something new, and so he's not going to make himself be bound and obligated to any human system or tradition. See, God is at work now, and his story, his way of doing things is going to shake things up. And God summarizes this in verse 7 when he says to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I want to say a few words about this because I think it's important that we understand this properly, that we don't distort it. So let me start with what this doesn't mean, okay? Now, this verse does not mean that gifts or talents or strengths, that they don't matter to God. See, sometimes I think that, that some people, Christians even, maybe even some Christian teachers that I've heard, they talk like gifts or strengths are actually bad things, like God prefers people that have no talent at all, okay? Uh, and the problem with that line of thinking, uh, as John Ortberg points out so well, is that line of thinking denies the doctrine of creation, which says that God made all things, including talents and gifts and strengths. God is the one who gave them out, and God intends to fully redeem those things. God intends to use those things, and God intends for those things to shine gloriously. So it's not like having strengths or talents are a bad thing. In fact, just a little bit later, verse 18, we read about David that he plays the harp skillfully, right? So he's, he's a brave man. He's a warrior. He speaks well. He's a fine-looking man. The text doesn't say, well, David's a mediocre musician. He's a coward and he's a geek. He's a poor speaker and a funny-looking guy. So God can really use him, right? It doesn't say that. So what 1 Samuel 16, 7 points out to us is, is, is not that gifts or talents or strengths are bad things that God can't use. What it points out, I think, is that the human race, we as a people, inevitably tend to obsess over external appearance, right? We think that charm or attractiveness or ability um, that leads to these outward accomplishments, we think that that's all that matters. So, you know, hey, if I've got those things in obvious, visible ways, then, then I've got it made. And uh, if I don't have them in obvious, visible ways, then I'm insignificant and I don't matter. The problem is when we go that way, we forget completely about the heart. But what God looks at is the heart. See, God had told Samuel, when he spoke to Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's what God found in David. And for us in the weeks ahead on our journey here together at Hope, uh, through this series, I, I, wanna, I wanna look at and ask this question. You know, what makes David's heart so appealing to God? What is it about David's heart that makes it a heart after God's own heart? And in this introduction that we looked at this morning, God says that what's really remarkable about David, in fact, what drew God to him was not the external stuff. It was his heart. And I think we can get really confused by this stuff. 
think it's way easier for us to decide about another person or even ourselves when we look at their accomplishments, their gifts and strengths, and if their heart is not quite right, eh, we'll choose all the other stuff because at least we'll know we'll get some things done. We trade off that character piece oftentimes because somebody has gifts or talents or strengths. And we really have to be careful and see with the eyes that God has and look for people with the right heart. And I believe that as, as we look at the life of heart and, and the heart of David, um, that God's going to do some things in us as a people here. He's going to do some things in our hearts as a people. And so that's why we're calling this a journey of the heart. See, it's a journey of the heart kind of deal, and I think we're going to learn a lot about Scripture. I think we're going to learn a lot about David, and I really think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. See, my prayer for us as a people over these next months is that our hearts are going to expand and deepen, and that we are going to be attentive to how we as a people are a people after God's own heart. So I want to talk about the heart for a moment as we wrap up. And, and one of the things I want us to remember as we go on this, and again, let's think of it as a journey, right? Um, and if we're on a journey here over the next few months together, uh, there, there's something that I'd like to make sure that you, that you pack and take along in this trip. In, in fact, if you don't pack this thing to bring along, I'm going to sneak up on, on you, I'm going to unzip your backpack, and I'm going to shove it inside, okay? So here's something that we're going to keep coming back to. It's something that's crucial that we need to know as we go on this journey of the heart. Um, as a child of God, here's the thing right here. As a child of God, you have a good heart. You have a good heart. It is the truest thing about you and who you are and how God made you. You know, um, oftentimes in church, we're real good at talking about original sin, but we're not so good about talking about original glory. See, remember, we were created in the image of God. We've talked about this the last few weeks. In the beginning, the original glory of God was reflected in each one of us. And again, inevitably, if you've been around the church or theology for any length of time, uh, you've heard about original sin. And somewhere this message just keeps getting pounded away at people that, hey, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? There's even a verse in Jeremiah 17.9 that says just that. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, and people say, okay, that's the verse. I'm hanging on to that one. That's proof that my heart is bad, your heart is bad, our hearts are all bad. Um, but we have to back up again, right? Before original sin that led to that kind of heart, there was original glory that God wants to restore back to us what he originally intended, right? He created us and said, it is good. But then sin came into the picture, and we lost our what? Our our hearts. But then the God who made us said, I am coming for your heart. I am coming for your heart. And he promised to give us a new heart to restore us. In fact, after that declaration in Jeremiah that I just read about the heart being wicked, the thing is you got to keep reading, right? A couple books later, God makes promises about what he's going to do about that wicked heart. God promises to us, I will give you, in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, that hard heart, and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. See, see, the God who made us became a man, and then he came 
to, to help us recover our hearts. He died on a cross and gave us a new heart. And so as we go on this journey of the heart to remember that that is a crucial piece of it, right? Um, that, that when we became followers of Jesus, we were adopted into the family of God, right? When we were, we were born again, one of the things that we got as a gift from God when we were born again is a new heart. So according to scripture, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a new heart. And so I just want to speak this truth to you this morning and to us as well. I need to hear this as well. See, guys, if, if, if you are in Christ and if Christ is in you, you may not be able to even feel this all the time. But here is the truest thing about you. It's this, that you have a new heart. You have a redeemed heart. You have a washed, clean heart. You have an alive-to-God heart. You have a good heart. It may not be a perfect heart, but it is a good one. And even now, as we sit here this morning, I'm aware that oftentimes for us it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Like, even now, as you know that you have this redeemed, alive-to-God new heart, You know that at the same time that it is a good heart, it might also be a wounded heart. And so this journey sometimes can be really confusing. Because your heart might also be, in addition to being the truest part, right, that it's alive to God, washed clean, redeemed, new, your heart also might be a weary, a weary heart. It might also at this very moment be a wandering heart, maybe Maybe you're even wondering if you can come home to your true heart because your heart feels so lost and far away. But today, we're gonna begin this journey of the heart, and my prayer for the journey is this, that all of us would recover our hearts, reclaim our true hearts, and that we would find our hearts so we can live as free men and free women from a full heart, a fully alive heart. Worship team, will you come? I bet you might, uh, some of you might have some similar memories to me uh, when you were a kid. Anybody do road trips, your family gets ready to go on a journey, on a trip, on a road trip, right? And if you grew up in a family where your parents were followers of Jesus, um, you'd go on these road trips and, and stop sometimes uh, and, and you'd pray. We would, ask for, we would ask for traveling mercies, and I don't, I don't know where that word came from, but that's what we would ask for all the time when we would go on these road trips. And um, um, in fact, we didn't go on a lot of vacations as, as kids. We just moved a lot, and that was kind of our vacation. We'd road trip to a new town, so. Um, but can any of you remember maybe sitting in your driveway as you're getting ready to take off on a road trip, and, 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 and maybe before the Folks even put the station wagon in reverse, or maybe you're just pulling out of the neighborhood. Um, you just sit in the driveway or, or start driving and pray. Um, that's what my folks would do. They would pray. They'd pause. They'd pray. They'd ask for traveling mercies. And, and so I see this journey that we're going on together here. And as we're pulling out of the driveway this morning to go on this journey, we haven't even gotten out of the neighborhood on our drive. Um, but before we leave, I, I want to pray, and I want to ask um, for this new series, for us to have uh, traveling mercies. So, uh, like my mom or dad prayed, I want to pray for us. But before I do that, I want to take a moment um, as the worship team begins to play, uh, just with no words, but just some instruments, just silently for you 
then to pray. Um, before I pray, I want you to just ask God what you need on this journey. Ask him for what you need on this journey. Like, what kind of mercies will you need for this journey that we're going on? Like, we're going on a journey of the heart, so what kind of grace might you need for this journey? What kind of, um, what kind of awakening might you need? So here we are. We haven't gotten out of the neighborhood, but just stop for a moment here. Ask God for what you need, for what you want in this journey, and then I'll pray before we sing our closing song. Just take a moment now.